Most of us spend very little time thinking about who puts our food on the table, the farm workers, the truckers, and especially the people who work inside food processing plants, and the pretty awful conditions many people put up with to do that. One of the worst places to work is a hog processing plant. It's noisy, fast-paced, cold, slippery, and for lots of workers, mentally numbing given that they basically work inside a sophisticated killing zone. And now it's potentially going to get a whole lot worse. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for May 16th, 2018. This podcast is brought to you in part by the Amalgamated Transit Union, the largest transit union in North America that fights for the interests of its 199,000 hardworking members and also promotes mass transit. So before we get into our podcast, yes, the Amalgamated Transit Union, I'm happy to say, is now a sponsor of the podcast, and I'm talking to other sponsors as well. But the fact is, the future of the podcast rests in the hands of many people like you, a growing number, who listen and are financial supporters because they spread the word and give us the regular resources to make all this possible. So if you are raging every single day about the traditional media shallowness, and it is quite shallow, please do go over now to workinglife.org and click on the podcast tab. And look for our link to Patreon so you can become a financial sponsor of the show at whatever level you can afford. Now, over the years, I've tracked the world of meatpacking workers in hog processing. That was mainly because of the epic effort by workers to form a union at the Smithfield Food Slaughterhouse in North Carolina. And some of you, my listeners and other people, may remember that that was a vicious, bitter battle that went on for actually, you know, almost two decades. And it finally ended when the workers won in December 2008 and organized a union under the auspices of the United Food and Commercial Workers. Hog processing, it's just a brutal work environment. Workers there actually have, according to statistics, 2.4 times higher rate of injury and 17 times a higher risk of getting ill than in any other industry. So, of course, in the world we live in, in the world of the bastards running the show in Washington, they want to make the work life even worse for meatpackers. The Department of Agriculture right now is proposing rules for a new system that would allow the hog processors, who are dominated by rich big corporations, to increase the line speed of the processing line. That's right, speed it up in a place that's already more dangerous than most industries. They want to speed it up, forcing workers to make more cuts and work even faster. This is the modern-day jungle. So to talk about this, let's turn to Deborah Berkowitz, who's the Senior Fellow for Safety and Health with the National Employment Law Project, that's NELP, and you can find them at nelp.org. And Debbie, one of the things that always strikes me about the industry that we're talking about, which is slaughterhouse of hogs, in fact, and the slaughtering of hogs, is it harkens back before we dive into where we are 
at now with the current regulation changes or the proposed changes, the old fight at the Smithfield Foods plant, which as you well know, was quite bitter and went on for many years until the UFCW was able to organize the workers. And the only reason I bring that up in this context is to show and to underscore what a tough industry this is, that there are very, very tough employers. They are extremely anti-union. Workers there have long suffered under terrible conditions going back many decades. And so in some way, the fact that we're fighting this proposal in this industry is not a surprise. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, Jonathan, you know, conditions really haven't changed much in the industry over the past you know, many decades. It is um, a harsh uh, setting for workers to work in. It's backbreaking work. They work very hard. You know, in the union plants, things are better, but in the non-union plants, you know, the wages are lower. Um, and, you know, conditions are such that this industry has the highest number of work-related occupational illnesses of any industry in the country, and they get seriously injured at a rate three times as high. And we think that that's actually underreporting because many of the workers in this industry are, are scared to report for fear of retaliation. And uh, government reports have actually documented that. Right. And so just to underscore that, the, the, there is this assembly line where these hogs are brought through and they're stunned and there's this whole process. But the speed at which it goes, to your point about the rate of injuries, Actually, I've seen these pictures when the assembly line is going so fast and you're trying to make these cuts and do these things to these animals who are coming through, you can miss sometimes and you're required to move so fast that there's these horrible disfiguring gashes and cuts that workers suffer over time, not to mention just the quote unquote normal pain and suffering that comes from carpal tunnel syndrome, which those of us who work at computers understand what that is. But when you're working in that kind of factory, that's multiplied a hundredfold in terms of the number of cuts you have to do in a given hour. Most people don't think about where their food comes from, especially their meat. You know, they think about other antibiotics in it. But I'm glad you're doing this broadcast so that people can think about it. In a hog Florida plant, workers work on both sides of uh, a steel conveyor belt. They have to make 10,000 cuts a day with sharp knives, scissors, and saws. They are working so close to each other that sometimes they cut each other in the race to get, you know, their cuts done and their products done. They rarely have time to sharpen their knives, so it makes it for very stressful. And, you know, studies have shown that workers have four seconds between each cut of meat that they have to do during the day. So this is really grueling work. And, um, you know, the, it, the, the truth is that, you know, they are having a hard time finding workers in this industry because it is so harsh. A lot of plants have turnover between 60 and 100 percent, and that's because workers get injured and they can't do the job and they need to leave. So why would you make conditions worse in this industry for all these workers in the Midwest? Um, and, and in North Carolina and Virginia, who work so hard so that, you know, consumers can have their, you know, Virginia ham and their North Carolina hams and, uh, you know, the, the things that, you know, people enjoy uh, 
and need to think about the, where, the cost to workers of where this comes from. And just what Debbie said, I would urge my listeners to just do a little exercise while you're sitting at in your home. Take one hour, start a time clock, start a timer, and then make motions with your hands with, you know, just standing there. Forget actually being in a cold environment with noise around you and the whole assembly line going. Just stand there and make a motion with your hand every four seconds over the course of an hour and feel what your, feel what your wrist feels like at the end of that hour. And you'll understand that the suffering that workers are going through, and you're actually doing it under a very controlled, protected environment. So that's a very good point about the kind of motions that the workers have to make on those assembly lines. I have a a wonky question before we now dig into what the USDA is proposing. And it's fact, it is in fact, why is this in the USDA's bailiwick? In other words, and this is the United States Department of Agriculture, doesn't OSHA oversee these kind of regulations? Are they trying to overstep the boundaries? I was a little confused about the bureaucracy here. Well, you ask a really good question. So historically, the United States Department of Agriculture, their mission is to promote, uh, you know, their products, uh, agriculture products, which include meat and poultry, promote the sale of it. But they were also given the responsibility to police food safety. Now, with crops and other uh, products grown in the ground, the Food and Drug Administration oversees food safety for those products. But in this case, you have the USDA, whose job is to promote uh, these products so that, uh, you know, companies make higher profits and um, more of the product is sold to consumers here and abroad also polices the industry for food safety. And uh, they are proposing uh, a radical change in in food safety, which is something the industry has wanted for years and years and years, which will have dire consequences for workers. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like what they're doing is that the USDA is essentially like the chamber of commerce for the agriculture industry. And let's be clear, this is not about little small farms. This is big agribusiness who are really the ones that dominate this whole industry and have the most power and influence. It seems like they're using food safety to overstep their bounds or try to trying to take authority over something that should be the area and responsibility of OSHA. Am I missing something or am I wrong about this? Well, I think you raise a very good point, and that is how does one agency propose a rule that directly conflicts with another agency's uh, mission, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration? But in this case, I think, and I think this is, you know, part of, you know, the, uh, you know, the misguided proposal and part of the sort of fallacy of the Trump administration is that they're not really standing for workers. They say they are. But what this rule is really all about is allowing companies to increase their profits at the expense of workers. And uh, it'll make working conditions harder. And, you know, OSHA is a very small agency. It would take them 150 years to get into every workplace once. So they can't be there to police it all. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now let's go a little bit into what the proposal would do. They want to do what that would make it more dangerous. Talk to us a little bit about that. So in the guise of saying that they are going to uh, deal with food safety, and I want you to know that in this proposal, the USDA is clear that they don't actually think this will increase food safety at all. But they're talking about modernizing the food safety system. And by modernizing, 
um, it's actually a misnomer, they're privatizing it. They're going to let the industry take over almost all functions of food safety. And in they're pulling USDA inspectors, most of them out of the workplace. They are not requiring any really more testing. They're not, uh, they're actually getting rid of some of the food safety standards. But what they will allow is the companies to run their lines faster so that every worker will be working about 12% faster. And what that will do is increase company profits. Mm-hmm. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. You're saying that companies want to increase company profits at the expense of worker safety. I'm shocked. Shocked. Yes. And not only that, and the USDA <laughs> is really enabling this because, you know, we looked at their proposal. They never took into account the cost of, uh, you know, the increase in work-related injuries. When they looked at the cost of the rule, they just looked at the benefits. And the benefits are that if companies can keep the same uh, costs they have now in producing the hogs, you know, the same amount of workers, but run their lines faster and uh, increase production, they could make millions of dollars more a year. And the companies, I want people to know, are not small mom and pop farms. These are big, giant corporations that make millions of dollars in profits a year that, you know, the industry is very concentrated now. You have JBS, a Brazilian company, Pilgrim's Pride, sort of, you have Tyson's, you have Cargill, you have very big companies out there, sort of, um, you know, and Smithfield and, uh, you know, running the industry. Very different than it was 25 years ago. And I noted when I was just doing a little research, this is kind of a small aside that Smithfield was actually bought up by a Chinese company. Is that right? Yes. So Midfield is now owned by a Chinese company. That is true. Right. And I don't mean, I didn't mean to bring that up as to feed into this sort of anti-China uh, rhetoric that we hear so much about, but it's more about the internationalization and the conglomeration, as you point out, of this industry. Now, one of the things you mentioned, and then I want to ask you another question about food safety. One of the things you mentioned in your um, testimony and the proposals and the comments that you put into the Department of Agriculture, and I urge people to read these at nelp.org, that this would remove inspectors from the line and decrease the number of food safety inspectors by 147 full-time trained government inspectors. And now we hear all the time about the way in which people are getting food that makes them sick and so on. So it, it completely defies common sense to say we're actually going to reduce the number of food safety inspectors and there there are not enough of them as it to begin with was that the point you were making that they want the industry to completely monitor this industry or is that a, a different issue so the real the whole impetus behind this is to get the government out of the business of inspecting uh you know, meat and poultry plants, which is exactly the opposite. That's about to happen um, with crop production, where you have all these people sickened and some died from lettuce that's been contaminated, and you have FDA now starting enforcement. I, I mean, I think they are privatizing inspection. They say that they're going to require and modernize it by requiring more bacterial and pathogen testing. But if you take a close look at the rule, It really doesn't require that much more testing, hardly enough. And in fact, one of the government agencies, a watchdog agency, um, did a report and found out that actually this whole system, the way they've put it forward, could decrease food safety. I mean, USDA could have proposed a rule, Jonathan, that said we need to do more pathogen and bacterial testing of the meat. 
And that would have been the rule. And they would have required it. And they could have split the cost between the government and the industry. And that's that. Now, I just want you to know, under the Obama administration, they did a very similar kind of uh, modernization in poultry. It's, uh, I think the jury is still out. Uh, a lot of people are thinking this is sort of making uh, poultry less safe to eat. But one notable thing is they didn't allow the poultry industry to increase lion speeds. Because once you increase lion speeds, not, do, not only do you endanger workers, but then it's harder for inspectors and anybody else left in the plant to do their job. I mean, the USDA said they're still going to inspect every carcass. Well, they used to have 147 more inspectors inspecting every carcass. Now they have that much less and the line's going faster. So consumers can sort of figure that one out. And to add on the point about the line speed, I think it was terrific that you included this in your comments to the USDA. You actually raised the issue of animal welfare as well. Not only the question of food safety, not only the question of worker safety, which is core to what we're talking about, but you point out in your rule, in your comments, and I'm just going to quote this one sentence, the removal of line speed caps has been shown to increase the chances for rough animal handling as employees feel the pressure to move hogs quickly through the slaughter. And talk just a minute about that. Yeah, you know, we have a large coalition who oppose this rule, including the ASPCA, the Humane Society, Compassion Over Killing, uh, Mercy for Animals, because, you know, without increasing the number of workers, you increase the number of hogs being slaughtered. And people understand pigs. They understand hogs. They see them in farms. You've got workers having to work so fast and so quickly to get these hogs, you know, you know, slaughtered, their throat slit, you know, down the line that it really can endanger animal welfare. And, uh, you know, it's uh, really something people need to think about. Yes. And, you know, I've seen in the past, it, it's a such a, it's a noisy environment that you're in because of the speed of the assembly lines. And, you know, there's a lot of fear on the part of the animals who are there. So there's so much chaos in these kinds of plants that workers, when they leave the plant, it must be an overwhelming experience in terms of just mental exhaustion. So what this is doing is essentially saying, for the profits, we're going to make the lives of both the workers and the animals even tougher and more miserable. Right. That's exactly what USDA is doing. And I think, um, you know, animals don't have a voice. I think a lot of the workers are low-wage workers. They're people of color. Um, a lot of them are immigrant workers who are very scared to, re uh, you know, report hazards and uh, sort of speak up. There's a very high turnover. And so the government really should not be complicit in sacrificing the health of workers and the welfare of animals just to line the pockets of already very wealthy corporations, including, you know, Tyson's Food, like look at their profit margin or, or Pilgrim's Pride, JBS. Um, and I think, you know, there really needs to be a reckoning here.
So the uprising among teachers is continuing, and it's just getting more intense. And as my regular listeners know, I've been following the amazing campaigns on the part of teachers for many, many weeks, starting in West Virginia, then we went to Oklahoma, and more recently, we've done a couple of podcasts that touched on what was happening in Arizona. And you can check out all those podcasts, as you can actually for all our podcasts, in our archive at workinglife.org. Now, I've made this point before. On its own, teachers standing up for better pay and also marching in unison with parents and the community to demand more money for public education, for schools, for textbooks, for better pay for the rest of the workers who support education, not just teachers, all that is a great thing on its own. But even more so, I've seen the uprising by teachers as forcing a real conversation about the stupidity of an economic ideology that has gripped the nation for several decades. And that's the ideology that you all know that says, oh, sure, cut taxes for the rich and starve basic services. Year after year, they continue to say cutting taxes for rich people will create a booming economy. And that's a complete lie. And it's a lie that continues to raise its ugly head, even as it's proven time and time again, wrong, 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 both at the federal level and at the state level. And yet, they continue with that ideology, even though it leaves no money to make sure schools aren't crumbling and teachers don't have to go to food banks so they won't starve. Now, maybe, just maybe, and I've said this before, teachers saying that enough is enough and walking out and protesting, and doing so, by the way, with the support of parents and lots of school boards, maybe this will help start a political change, a political conversation. And maybe that will start this November when those politicians who are being targeted now by teachers in those states where teachers are rising up, those politicians who prefer to coddle the rich rather than give money to schools and education will be defeated at the polls. So today, today, Maybe as you're listening to this podcast, it's North Carolina teachers up to bat. Hey, it's baseball season. They're going up to bat. Thousands of teachers in North Carolina will hit the pavements to do as their brethren have in other states before. They're going to take on the political establishment that has destroyed public education funding in North Carolina, all in the name of cutting taxes for the very rich and very wealthy corporations. It's the same immoral story. It's the same playbook. Billions of dollars have been given to the elites while teacher pay has fallen. Take this statistic. The average North Carolina teacher's salary has dropped 5.6% over the past decade and is close to 10 grand lower than the national average. And even crazier, next January 2019, the state is slated to cut almost a billion dollars more from the budget, all in the form of yet even more insane tax cuts. So to talk about what North Carolina teachers are doing, I had a chance to catch up before the huge demonstration today with Mark Jewell, who is president of the North Carolina Association of Educators. And Mark has been a teacher and in the education world 
for 26 years. And I think, Mark, everybody knows, and certainly my listeners know, that nobody goes into teaching to become a wealthy, rich billionaire. That's just not what teaching is about. But what has struck me as we've talked about the various teacher uprisings over the past number of weeks from West Virginia to Oklahoma to Arizona and now to North Carolina, what strikes me is this is really about so many teachers just trying to pay their basic bills to make sure the electricity doesn't get cut off. I had one teacher on, which are my listeners can remember from our podcast a number of weeks ago from Oklahoma, who literally had to go to a food pantry because her paycheck was not enough to get through the month to feed her family. So I want to start with, you know, you've had 26 years in this field. What has it been like and what changes have you seen in terms of teachers' struggles just to make ends meet? Yeah, you know, that's a very good question. I'm a transplant to North Carolina. I actually moved, I taught school in West Virginia uh, began in 1987 and moved to North Carolina in 1997 because uh, it was the new land of opportunity for public school teachers. We were a beacon in the South, and we were investing in a long-term strategic plan to move teacher pay to the national average. And we were investing, you know, in paying educators for their master's degree pay. We paid uh, teachers in North Carolina for uh, years of experience and longevity and uh tragically, we saw all of that wiped out in 2013 when a supermajority took power with their governor at the time and, uh, you know, knocked out and, uh, many of the things that brought educators into, uh, into North Carolina and into teaching. So uh, they dismantled the teacher salary schedule. Uh, they eliminated master degree pay. They eliminated longevity. They eliminated step increases. Um, so now North Carolina makes about $9,000 below the national average in teacher pay. Most of our teachers are making below $50,000, and those are with many years of experience. Our beginning state teacher salary starts now at uh, a very dismal $35,000 and caps out at $51,300. It's certainly not enough to recruit and retain um, educators into the state of North Carolina. And I assume on a very anecdotal basis, you must hear stories from your members and know perhaps personally of teachers who, as I sort of said in the introduction, just can't pay their bills on that. Yeah, it's, it is so true. Most of, most of my colleagues do have second jobs, whether it's uh, you know pharmaceutical tech, working at Costco, uh, waiting tables on the weekends to bring in ca- extra cash. They simply can't live from paycheck to paycheck on uh, what the state is funding them right now. And it's very sad because though, as you said earlier, you know, we didn't go into teaching, you know, obviously to become millionaires, but we did not take a vow of poverty either. Teachers work very hard. They're, you know, their work weeks are somewhere 50 to 60 hours per week. Uh, most of their summer times are spent in high quality professional development training. And, uh, you know, they out of pocket about $1,000 a year, you know, buying pencils and paper and supplies for their students so that they can have the resources. Because, you know, that's another thing that we really haven't talked about is this, this fight is much more in North Carolina than teacher pay. It's about resources for our students. Mm. Uh, you know, and that whole thing about 
teachers having to pay out of their own pockets to bring in pencils to their classrooms. To me, that's an immoral outrage, and that's happening. That's a long-term story that I've heard from so many parents going back 20 years. That, to me, shows the decline of this country in terms of the idea that you support public education in the future, certainly the future generations. I don't want to go miss that point that you made, and I want to underscore it. I want to, do, in fact, come to the broader question of education, but the point you made that highly trained teachers, the people who are held out to be very much symbols of the community are having to take second jobs and waiting on tables to make ends meet. That's that's what you said, right? Yes, yes. Waiting on tables, uh, servers in restaurants, uh, you know, and uh, you know, using the tip money right there to be able to pay their rent and their bills. They're having to, you know, They've cut all the extra expenses out. Many uh, educators now don't have cable. Uh, you know, they can't afford to cover their families on uh, family health insurance. It's, it's, that, it's that grave type of situation that we have right now in North Carolina. Now, as you pointed out, this especially became very, very intense and the problem became even more enhanced when the supermajority of the legislature and the Republican governor, in since 2013, they've been cutting taxes and essentially giving money to wealthy corporations and, and rich people. And that's something that's a theme, if you will, all across the country. That's what's happened in many states, and that's bankrupted the state treasuries. I mean, the cupboard is bare. And your point is that it's not just about teacher pay. It's the point that schools are crumbling. You don't have enough teachers actually to fill the classrooms. The basic educational infrastructure is basically falling apart. Yeah, so true, Jonathan. In 2013, when the supermajority got power and elected a governor who carried their water, Governor McCroy, uh, you know, they instituted a huge corporate tax uh, break. And it left about $2.6 billion on the table that should have been going to public schools. It's set to drop again this January, which will have another huge tax break for the corporate uh, uh, corporations and rich folks as well, which will be another billion dollars that should be going to public schools. So uh, we're about $2,600 per child below the national average and per pupil funding. And they have decimated our public school um funding stream. And it's in, that's what we're fighting about. This is why we're marching on the 16th. The 16th is actually just the, just the beginning of a six-month stretch, because all the marching that we can do when the General Assembly is, sesh, is in session will be fruitless if we don't take this momentum and energy and march to the ballot box on November the 6th and elect pro-public education policymakers. We've got to change the people there who are making the uh, legislation. We've got to give our governor. Now, mind you, uh, we do have a pro-public education governor in North Carolina that ran on school funding, Governor Roy Cooper, but he's got to have some help because they keep on overriding his vetoes. Mm -hmm. And I do want to come very much to the elections and the political aspect of this, but I want to underscore one of the things that has happened in the other uprisings, and it sounds like you folks are definitely uh, in the same uh, arena and the same strategy. In every state, the teachers have made common cause with parents and the communities because this is so important. Over the past several decades, as I've looked at 
strikes, especially public sector workers going out, one of the things politicians do very, very easily and very ably is try to divide the workers from the rest of the community. They basically say, you know, if you're a transit worker going out on strike to get a decent pay, oh, you don't actually care about the community. You're stranding the community. Certainly true of teachers, but it sounds like what you are doing here, and it's true in West Virginia, Oklahoma, Arizona, your comrades there, you're making common cause with the entire community over this. You're, it's so right, Jonathan. We're very proud of the fact that we, we partnered early with community organizations. Their parent groups are really joining in, uh, with us. And now that uh, many of our school districts have closed for that day, they're bringing their students with them. We've also partnered with other organizations, you know, the, the North Carolina NAACP, Equality North Carolina, all of these uh, groups that have uh, stood side, side by side with public schools are joining with us in this fight for funding and fight for our profession. And, and it's really a fight for the future of North Carolina. And the closing of those school districts in West Virginia, at least, there were actual uh, statements of support from the school districts, many of them, a majority of them. Are, are the school districts closing because there's a lot of teachers who are simply go- taking a loud leave, or are they actually closing, if you will, if I can use the term, in solidarity with the effort on the 16th? That's a very good question. You know, obviously, our, our, uh, our educators are taking the appropriate legal leave on May the 16th, and that's right. personal leave. Yep. Um, but they've, you know, the school districts have been so inundated with the number of amount of requests that we don't have the substitutes in North Carolina and many of these districts uh, to, to be able to operate our schools. Uh, but to your point, the superintendents, most of the superintendents have said, have stood in solidarity with their uh, with their educators and said, you know, it, your fight is our fight. Uh, you know, they're leading the school districts and they understand how uh, the legislators are uh, starving uh, our public schools. So it's been very uplifting and motivating and inspiring to hear our principals as well as their superintendents and our school boards stand in solidarity with North Carolina public school educators. And so to kind of go to our end point, and you in some way telegraphed exactly what I wanted to talk about. We're we're in a mind meld, as they say in the Star Trek world. I'm a Star Trek. You like Star Trek? <laughs> yeah. Yes. You know, I'm a child and product of the 70s. There you go. So we're, we're in a Vulcan mind meld here. Um, the, the most important thing, I mean, the, the actual thing of getting money for teachers and education is really important. But the larger point that I see happening over all these states is a real challenge this, to this whole crazy idea that you can just cut taxes in at the state level, you can empty the cupboard, and you can still provide services, or, although some – Republicans, if I can use one party as an example, don't really care about services. But what's really interesting to me is the way in which the community, and this was the point about you making the alliance with the community, there seems to me to be, with these teacher uprisings, a moment in time that may be reflected at this ballot box, but way beyond that, where all of a sudden people say, and I mean, when I say people, I don't care what party you belong to or what ideology you say you are, but on a practical level, people all of a sudden may be saying this idea of supply-side economics, of cutting taxes, of just giving back to the rich, it is not working because our communities are falling apart. And that's what I find especially exciting about what you all are doing. 
Yeah, and I appreciate you really underscoring that piece there. It is it is ripping apart the uh, the heart and core of uh, of North Carolina communities. And you know, to your point, that public education is supposed to be a nonpartisan issue. You know, we we tell that over and over again uh, when we talk about the policies there. It's not about Democrat or Republican. Uh, it's about education. Public education is the economy in North Carolina. It builds strong communities. It creates jobs. It makes industry want to come here in North Carolina. And we have partnered with public and private sector for decades in order to build a strong North Carolina that made us that beacon in the southeast. That's how we got Research Triangle Park here in the 50s. And uh, and they've, they've completely wiped out all of that progress there. So uh, regardless of their party, we are marching to the polls, and we have the power now to reverse this backward trend of public education, and we can change public education policy for decades to come, but we have to do it at the ballot box on November the 6th, and we intend to do that. We definitely intend to take back the House and pick up seats in the Senate and give Governor Cooper uh, some momentum and some power to make uh, real public education policy changes that invest in our 1.5 million public school students. Now a bit of maybe electoral politics. Back in 2016, Heidi Harmon was elected mayor of San Luis Obispo in California. I first met Heidi two years ago during the presidential campaign when I came to speak on behalf of Bernie Sanders at a meeting in San Luis Obispo. And at the time, Heidi was an activist. At that meeting, during the question answer after I spoke, she stood up and said that she'd been thinking about running for city council and maybe even for mayor. And to make a long story short, she did run for mayor, and she won. Probably as important, and a great lesson for all progressives who may be listening, may be thinking about running for public office, or are involved in other electoral campaigns, she won because of a broad organizing effort that she worked on with other progressives in her community. And that would end up creating a progressive club of 3,000 members, and it ignited a huge sweep of the local Democratic Party states party seats and engagement now as we speak in other races besides her own. In other words, electing one person is great, and Heidi Harmon is terrific. When that victory is supported by a much larger organizing plan and strategy, it means something much more long-term. It says then that progressives, we, the progressive movement, we're not dependent on the success of just one person. Now, Heidi has been a successful mayor, and as she prepares to officially announce her re-election campaign next month, I thought it would be a good time to check in with her and see what serving in office has been like for a progressive, the ups and the downs, and the lessons that we might all learn as we head into the elections in 2018. And I spend a lot of time on this podcast, Heidi, as you know, talking to all sorts of candidates running to for various 
public offices. And the one thing that we don't do a lot of is talk to progressives who are actually have power and who are running cities and other localities. And that's what I think is really interesting to bring you on the show as you're preparing to run for re-election after your first term. I thought we would start by asking, um, first of all, what are the things that surprised you as mayor that you maybe thought um, were different than you had expected or things that, you know, just seemed like normal. It's talk a little bit about your experience. Okay. All right. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on again. Um, I, I love coming on and, and talking to you about all these important things. And it is kind of funny when you say progressives in power, I kind of want to do one of those look behind me and say, who me? Um, and so it's, it is, <laughs> it is kind of, um, it's great. And I think that um, it's been it's been really interesting to be in this position, having been on the outside for so long. And I think that I would really encourage people to consider making that tra- transition from a more activist mode to an elected office mode um, with the idea that, you know, we can't just be on the outside demanding. We really need to be on the inside deciding. And And I've now been on the inside deciding for a year and a half, and we've accomplished so much. So I think that's maybe one of the, I don't know if I would say it's a surprise, but maybe to some extent, um, how much we've been able to accomplish in the last year and a half. So things like um, that are really important to me, and I think to a lot of people, but coming out of climate activism, especially, really proud that climate action is one of our major city goals for the first time in our city's history, hiring a sustainability coordinator, committing to being in that zero city, moving towards community choice energy, things like that that are very real, substantive policy decisions that we have made in the last year and a half that are really going to move the needle in our local community on, a, on an issue like that. So here's um, a, this is a ex- great example. Yeah. So the sustainability person that you have hired, was that something yeah. that was in your platform to do? Specifically, I mean, hire an individual or when you got into office, did you see and look around in the budget and say, okay, if we're actually going to do this stuff, we need somebody dedicated to this and therefore... I'm going to go to the council and I'm going to say, we need to allocate in our budget a person to do this. And therefore, this was something that was kind of to my point. You walked into office and said, okay, here are all these um, broad goals I have, but how am I going to implement it? That's the question. Well, and that's a great question. And I think another thing that's been a real surprise, uh, a delightful surprise to me is the powerful working relationship that councils can have and then our council does have with staff. So often, especially when we talk about something like climate change, what we understand is that we have the the technology or the, or the scientific understanding and all of that of what we basically need to do. And often what's been missing is the political will. And so I really brought that political will to our local community and partnering with staff then, once we decided to push climate action as a major city goal, then it's it's then it's more of a of a back and forth between staff and council figuring out exactly what that's going to mean. And so between the two of us and also um, the community coming up with things like, yes, absolutely, we need a sustainability coordinator um, to lead the effort. And so that wasn't necessarily, I mean, it's kind of an obvious uh, need in that case that we needed someone to lead that effort. Um, but staff too is coming up with more specifics um, and we have experts on staff that I may not have the actual expertise to understand all the depth and the details. 
Um, and so we keep going back and forth um, in sort of a policy conversation, I guess you would say, to bring those things to life. And I guess this was even more interesting, This what you just said. You ran as an insurgent. So the staff, and this is something that all insurgents will face, uh, people who may be competing for the first time in office, progressives especially, they're going to come into office working with a staff that has been working potentially, well, not potentially, but was working with an incumbent previously. And that was true in your, that was true in your case where you basically defeated an incumbent. So there was a moment, I assume, where you all had to meet and there was a period of time where, where you had to get used to each other and start to trust each other. Sure, absolutely. And I think that there definitely was a sense and probably a concern that I was one of those, I hate the government and the staff especially, and I'm here to destroy the whole, burn the whole thing down. Because um, that definitely exists in our community and probably communities all across the United States. And so I think what was a surprise for them is how I was not that person, how I'm actually, I think, a really great help collaborator and kind of team builder and really appreciate their expertise. And uh, have been able to build, I think, really good relationships with the staff. I, I don't think um, there's any real benefit from demonizing staff um, just on for the sole purpose of demonizing essentially expertise. Um, we see that happening at the federal level, and I don't think that's working out very well. Um, that's especially important in cities like yours where they, in some way, the staff on a day-to-day basis, because they are full-time, they're being paid full-time as professionals, they have a little bit more power and presence in a day-to-day basis than a mayor who isn't, although he, the job is more than full-time in terms of the hours you put in, the, the way you're compensated, unfortunately, is not is not proper. But there's a way in which, especially in smaller cities where there isn't a huge mayoral staff that's that's dedicated to you, you have to rely a lot on them and therefore you have to build those partnerships. And that's, I think, a lesson, correct me if I'm wrong, yes, definitely. That, that's a lesson that's good for those people listening who are thinking about running. Frankly, not everybody's going to run to be governor or senator their first time out. They're sure. likely to be running f- for the city council at first. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that if, you know, I, I've been surprised how pragmatic I am, actually. And I think staff has definitely been surprised at that, too. Um, but um, I think I've, I've heard the word practivist, right? And so I, I resonate with that completely. I get that. You know, yes, I'm an activist, and I am not at all afraid to say the hard things and do the hard things, even if it makes anyone, even staff, uncomfortable. Like, I would absolutely do that. And though I'm really interested in getting something accomplished, especially when it comes to these really crucial issues with ever shortening timeframes of effectiveness like climate change. Um, I, you know, I didn't come here to uh, show people that I'm the boss. Uh, I came here to get things done. And I think that, yes, developing a really constructive relationship with the community and then also the staff, because you're really the fulcrum between those two entities um, that are, you know, that's how we get, that's how cities kind of come together to figure out how they're going to move forward. So, yeah, staff, yeah, is essential, essential. I think city managers, like here's here's a surprise. Here's actually my biggest surprise. If people really want to be a part of affecting change on a local level, which is, I think, where we're really making change all across the United States, 
I would consider becoming a city manager, right? Like it doesn't sound exciting or sexy, right? Like those of us that have been on the outside marching around aren't thinking, you know, what, tell me what democracy looks like. A democracy looks like being a city manager. Like, no, right. that doesn't, that's not, the, <laughs> that's not the chant, but they are so essential to the implementation of the people's will. And I could see how they could exert their own will if they were so inclined um, and so there's a lot of mechanisms for change within city government that I think people that are probably underexplored. Uh-huh. I, I have to say, I'll tell you, I'm so sick of hearing this is what democracy looks like as a chant now. Totally. 20 years later, the, the notion know. that we could actually say uh, the city manager is what democracy looks like. Actually, <laughs> that appeals to me, I have to say. That appeals to me just on the basis of changing this damn chant, getting rid of yes. the, the old, tired ones. Yes. Um, so <laughs> let's face it. It's a political position you have. You're running for election. There's no question that yeah. some of the old guard are still out there and grumbling and not happy. So, but in the political sense, before we talk about your reelection, in the political sense, how have you been able to bridge that uh, gap and what have you done? Have you felt comfortable or what were the challenges of trying to bring along people who didn't necessarily support you at first? Sure. Well, I have, so I'm probably one of the most, people say, and I don't know how you would verify this, but probably one of the most progressive mayors uh, going. Um, and so I think that that could, you know, you could make an assumption that conservative folks would be very much against me. And definitely there's some of that. But actually, I've had a really surprising amount of conservative support. And I think it's, I think it's because at least the feedback I get from them is that while they don't agree with all the decisions I make, they appreciate the way I'm doing the job. And I think that there's a style that, that most people appreciate. And I, and I think that's, um, you know, an overused word to be sure, but I have a really authentic style. You know, I am pretty much being my full self and you're, you kind of know what you're going to get with, with somebody like me. And I think that there's an inherent respect from people um, with somebody like that. Um, where I continue to have the hardest challenge is with the establishment Democrats, right? I mean, I think that they have seen me and my support of Bernie and, and those types of things, um, I, I, I guess, as a threat, right, to their power structure. And so that continues on. And I think that we will, we're definitely seeing that percolations of that in this reelection time. And so we'll see what ends up happening. But unfortunately, you know, they're still, I think, instead of really moving forward and getting excited about a more progressive vision, which to me is a more Democrat vision, if you will, um, they seem to be really holding on to a past that, that no longer exists. And I think that just on two points, wonderful points you made, you, when I first met you, you did remind me of, if I can use the peril, a Wellstonian type progressive Democrat mm -hmm. after Paul Wellstone. Mm -hmm. And to your point that people, conservatives, lots of people who were in the state of Minnesota didn't necessarily support Paul Wellstone, but they liked him and they sometimes even voted for him if they were conservative or even Republicans because they felt like he was authentic, number one, and that what he said, he actually believed in and he would follow through on. Mm -hmm. His his word was good. And I, I think that goes a long way to at least nullify opposition or at least make it less intense. People are willing to say, okay, I'll give that person a chance. Yes, I think that's really important. I think that, you know, especially 
I'm going to say especially for women, but maybe I'm not accurate in that. But I think that we especially are either, you know, are really guided and, and advised to be something that we're not. For one, we're guided and advised to come at this position more from a masculine perspective. Um, and I think that we see that manifest with somebody like Hillary Clinton, right? One of the things I think that was hard about her is that there was a really strong feeling that you were not getting her authentic self. And probably one of those reasons is because she was at the, coming up in a time where, you know, I, with all empathy, I understand it, that, you know, she really was coming from a more masculine place. Um, and so I think that really the world needs us to show up as we really are. Um, and so I think when you're doing that, whatever you're doing in elected office or otherwise, you're going to resonate with more people. Um, and so I think that's part of what's happening. And so as we kind of wrap up, uh, I, I want to underscore, and I know you feel strongly about this, that one of the reasons you've been able to be successful and actually have had a huge core around you to support your work in the city is the amazing work that the progressives generally had done, the whole progressive, the slow progressive club that grew out and and was built in a sense to support your election the first time and now is working to try to elect other people. And that's the great model mm -hmm. of progressive victories long-term. We find someone who's terrific and we can support, but we build the infrastructure around Ape that person mm -hmm. for a particular office, whether it be mayor or something else, and then continue to elect other people, which is what you folks are doing. Yeah, it's really exciting to see this grow from such a tiny seed into this huge movement. I think we have one of the biggest progressive Dem clubs in the United States, and we're really doing the work. And it's not perfect, right? We're definitely having growing pains. And, you know, we're, we're moving forward. We have a lot of candidates running right now you know, people's attention is, is divided and all of those challenges that any organization would face. And though we're really doing the work. And I think, again, because we have hopefully authentic candidates with values that they have the courage to stand with, that we also get energy. So we have a lot of people that are willing to walk neighborhoods, make the calls, make the donations, and all of those things that it really takes to get people in those positions of decision-making power. Um, and so I, I think we're, we're we're really doing something here in San Luis Obispo, and so well, hopefully that um, hopefully that's happening all throughout the United States. time for our robber baron of the week. Our robber baron of the week, not surprisingly, is Sonny Perdue, the Secretary of Agriculture. I'll bet you most listeners could not name who the Secretary of Agriculture is. I had to take a moment to recall who it was, actually, in all fairness. Perdue is a longtime hack, dating back to his days as governor of Georgia, during which, among other things, he continued to praise and embrace the Confederacy and he went after immigrants. He pocketed tens of thousands of dollars in campaign cash from agribusiness interests, so it's no surprise he's looking after the profits of big agribusiness at the expense of workers. But it's his current actions that are dangerous. This is the man who is pushing through regulations that will cause more illness and injury 
to thousands of workers in the meatpacking industry. And for that reason, Sonny Perdue is the robber baron of the week. And that'll do it for this week's podcast. Thanks to our major sponsor, the Amalgamated Transit Union, the largest transit union in North America that fights for the interests of its 199,000 hardworking members and promotes mass transit. And thanks to our guest, Debbie Berkowitz of NELP, Mark Jewell, the president of the North Carolina Association of Educators, and Heidi Harmon the mayor of San Luis Obispo, and a great friend of the show. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Please do become a sponsor of the podcast. Please pass a link to the podcast to five of your friends on your email list or text five of your friends. And of course, become a financial sponsor of the podcast so we can continue bringing you this great information, stuff you will not hear in the traditional media. Thanks for listening and look forward to having you back next week.